Today is the third day of Christmas. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three, three, three French hens, two turtle doves. After day two, I kind of start to get lost. Two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Christmas actually is a 12-day season, as most of you know, that goes uh, from Christmas Day to Epiphany. And Epiphany marks the, uh, at least in the tradition of the church, marks the arrival of the wise men at the place where Jesus was and the giving of the gifts to Jesus that the wise men gave. And it's in commemoration of the gifts that they gave that Christmas has become a season of giving. How many of you got what you wanted for Christmas? Some of you didn't. (laughs) Our gift this year was a grandson. Sharon said it's the best Christmas she's had in a long time, I think, ever. Me too. Because she was in Ohio, I spent Christmas morning by myself, and actually it was it was really great. Not that it was great that she was gone, or that, you know, I've been teasing her and saying, she says it's the best Christmas she's ever had, and she's, she didn't have to have me around, you know. <laughs> we miss each other terribly, but I was able to spend some quiet time reading the Christmas story from Luke and Matthew and singing some carols, which Sharon and I usually do together on Christmas morning. And then I opened the cards and the gifts that we received from you. And I just want to thank you so much for the expressions of love and affection that you have for us and have shared with us as well as the gifts that you've given to us. We actually, between COVID and a new grandbaby and several other things going on this season, did not do our normal baking and fudge making and everything else that we often do at Christmas time, but... Next year, we'll catch up again, I'm sure. If you think about it, there are two sides or two perspectives that come with every gift. There is the person who gives the gift and their perspective. Usually there's a cost of some kind that has to be paid in order to give that gift. And then there's the person who receives the gift and their perspective and whether the gift is meaningful or valuable to them or not, whether they recognize the cost behind it. And those two perspectives don't always line up, do they? Have you ever put a lot of thought and care into a gift and then the recipient just kind of says, oh, that's nice, (laughs) We've probably all experienced that, and we've probably all had some winners and some losers in the gift-giving department. I remember one year when I gave Sharon a feather pillow, and it, I, I thought, you know, this is just kind of a nice thing that I'll, that I'll give her that was kind of on the side. And it, you'd think that I had given her a new house, because I had remembered months before that she had said, man, my neck is really bugging me. I think a feather pillow could help. And just that. Remembering meant a lot to her. There are two perspectives. And the birth of Christ is similar. There are two perspectives, two sides to that gift. 
The angel announced to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the peoples. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That was the announcement of the most wonderful and amazing gift that has ever been given. The second member of the Trinity fused himself with our humanity and entered into our world to give us the gift of salvation. So every Christmas, Christians around the world celebrate what God has given to us, and well, we should. But even as we celebrate that amazing gift that we have received... We also do well to remember what it cost the giver to give it. To us, who are the recipients, Christmas represents joy and peace and blessing. But to the giver, that same event represents unfathomable sacrifice and pain and sorrow. And we hear that tension In the Christmas story, in the voice of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 that I reflected on last week. On the one hand, he says, with great joy, my eyes have seen your salvation. And on the other hand, he turns to Mary and a shadow comes across that wonder and says, a sword will pierce your soul. John Dunn, who is a... um, was a um, poet, lived in the 17th century, and also um, an Anglican cleric, said this in his Christmas sermon in 1626. He said, The whole life of Christ was a continual passion. Passion meaning the passion of the Christ. Others die martyrs. But Christ was born a martyr. His birth and his death were but one continual act. His Christmas Day and his Good Friday are but the evening and morning of one and the same day. Pretty profound. The manger lies in the shadow of the cross. So today, I want to look at Christmas from the other direction. We've sung about in this season and reflected on what it means to us, the recipients. But today I want to spend some time reflecting on what it meant for the giver. What did it mean for God. And along those lines, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, a passage that we are quite familiar with. Philippians chapter 2, and we will begin reading in verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice there, right at the end of verse 7, that's a statement about Christmas, right? He is born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this part of the passage, and as you know, the the passage uh, uh, really goes all the way on to verse eleven. We've just read um, a portion of it, and and really, if you if you really go back and read that, read the um, Philippians two again, the thought begins in verse one. Usually, we start our reading of this passage in verse five, but the thought that Paul is developing begins all the way back in verse one. But in verses six through eight. Paul makes three important points that help us, I think, understand Christmas from God's point of view as the giver. The first thing that Paul tells us is that before the incarnation, before Mary conceived her child by the power of the Holy Spirit, before all that, that same child that was conceived in her was God fully and completely. John speaks of the same idea at the beginning of his gospel in John 1.1, where he says, In the beginning, he, the word, that is Christ, was with God, and he was God. And that's the first point that Paul makes for us. Jesus was God. God from the beginning, the eternal Son. The second point Paul building here makes is that though he was fully God and possessed all the glory and honor that belonged to God alone, the eternal Son didn't consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. What Paul means there is that the Son did not demand the honor and the glory that were due to Him. Have you ever had that experience with people who, who, who have some skill or have some honor, and they want you to make, they want to make sure that you give them all the honor that, that, that they ought to have? Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't cling to it. He didn't guard it. He didn't insist on keeping what was rightfully his. He didn't insist on being recognized for what was his right. He didn't consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Instead, Paul says, and that's the third point in verse 7, he emptied Himself. He emptied himself. Those two words, I think, lie at the heart of Christmas from God's point of view. He emptied himself. And it, that, 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 that short phrase tells us two important things. First, No one took his honor and glory away from him. 
he willingly laid it down. And secondly, he didn't lay down some of it. He laid down all of it. He emptied himself. On Christmas Eve, I reflected on the indignity of childbirth. And if you were there, uh, you heard that short homily. And if you didn't, I know you'll all be rushing to the, to the website to, to look it up. The newborn Jesus, we have this picture of the newborn Jesus having just experienced the trauma of birth. Naked and flailing and covered in mucus and blood. Completely and utterly vulnerable. And in that picture, we see our God as he is. A God who empties himself. So, Paul says, the eternal creator laid aside his majesty and his glory and his honor and his power, and he became a human being. And then in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, and as a human being, it's enough, isn't it? (laughs) That he laid aside his glory and honor to become a human being. But then as a human being, he surrendered himself to humiliation and death. And none of it was done to him. Nothing was taken away from him. He was not a victim of anybody. He emptied himself. And that is the other side of Christmas. We have received the gift of a Savior. But in order to give us that gift, the eternal God had to empty himself. I want to make several observations that are related to that. First, the decision to empty himself in order to give us the gift of a Savior was made before he ever created us. The decision to empty himself, to give us a Savior, was made before he even ever created us. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 speaks of Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the decision to come into our world as a sacrifice of sin or a sacrifice for sin, was not made as a response to sin. That's an important thing to remember. The decision for Jesus to be the lamb that was slain was not made because human beings sinned. The decision for Jesus to be the lamb slain was made as a condition of creating us. It was part of the decision to create. It was made in anticipation anticipation of the fact that if God were going to create 
and to bring creatures to life and then offer himself to them in a relationship of love, he would also need to be prepared that those creatures would not accept his offer of love and that they would reject him and turn away from him. And think about the implications of that. In eternity past, God conceived a plan to create a creature with whom he could share the goodness and the beauty of eternal love. The same kind of love that he enjoys as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his purpose was, hey, let's share this. Love always goes out. It wants more to embrace. And so God in his counsel, the counsel of the Trinity says, let's create a creature to share this good thing with. But before he began that project, he counted the cost. What would it take to see that plan through to the end? And just the realization, the reality, if human beings rejected his love, then he would need to be prepared to do what it took to restore them to himself. Because one thing we know about God, he doesn't start anything he doesn't intend to finish. And knowing what it would cost him, he still decided to move ahead with the creation of human beings that have given him so much grief. There's a great song, one of my favorite Christmas songs from Selah. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's called Mystery. And uh, these are the opening two verses, or I guess the first verse in the chorus. A child was born on Christmas Day, born to save the world. But long before the world began, he knew his death was sure. The pain and strife secured. Mystery. How he came to be a man. But greater still, how his death was in his plan. God predestined that his son would die, and he still created man. Oh, what love is this? That his death was in his hands. Mystery. In order to give us the gift of a Savior, he knew it would cost him everything that was most dear to him. And still, he decided to pay that price before he ever created a single human being. Second observation regarding God's side of Christmas is this. In order to come to us, he left his place at the right hand of the Father. Advent is the season in which we anticipate his arrival. It is about him coming to us. But the other side of the coming to us is the leaving that was implied. 
the Christmas carol that uh, that actually has this the name of the first line says it really well, I think. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. So what we celebrate as his advent, his arrival, for him was a departure, a leaving. He left the eternal throne room in heaven in order to come into this world and be born in a barn. Can you imagine how much farther apart could you get? And as he left that throne room, he knew that before he returned, he would become sin. And the Father, with whom he enjoyed perfect communion, the Father the precious father would become his judge and direct his wrath upon his shoulders. He knew when he left that throne room that he would drink the bitter cup, that he would experience in himself the collective suffering of a sin-torn world. And worse yet, He would cry out those terrible words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew when he rose from his throne at the Father's side that when he returned, he would possess human hands and human feet. And those hands and feet would bear the scars of the nails that held him on the cross. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 50 and verse 7 says of him, I have set my face like a flint. Absolute determination to fulfill the purpose for which he came into the world to walk the road that had been marked out for him from eternity past. The road from the throne room of heaven to the manger to the cross. He emptied himself. Third observation actually is Um, An observation that I think most of us probably recognize, but uh, the theologian, 20th century theologian Jürgen Moltmann observed um, in his book, The Crucified God, that the Father and the Son suffered equally in their resolve to redeem humanity. The gift of a Savior was as costly for the Father to give as it was for the Son to be. The gift of a Savior was as costly for the Father to give as it was for the Son to be. The Son suffered the humiliation and pain of the cross. The Father suffered the unspeakable grief at the death of His beloved Son. Think about it. What did it take for the Father 
to place the sins of the world onto the Son and place him, essentially, on the altar. We get a sense of that, right? Because God asked Abraham to do something similar and then spared him at the end in order that, to, to help us understand what would that be like for you to raise the blade against your own son? What would that take? What did it take for the father to turn away from his beloved son, to hear the son's cry, why have you forsaken me? And not stop everything and say, no, I can't pay this price. To still follow through on that plan. Some, and sadly it's becoming increasingly popular in Christian circles to suggest that the idea of the Father pouring out His wrath on the Son somehow reflects a God who is heartless and cruel. But the opposite is true. The Son and the Father were in agreement together. It was their love for us that held them both to their resolve to endure that pain to redeem us. John says it so simply. Actually, Jesus says it in the Gospel of John. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world. The gift of Christmas came at a cost. God has given us the gift of a Savior, and that Savior has given us the gift of salvation. But in order for us to receive that gift, God paid the price of the giver. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself to be born as a human being. And as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So that truth has tremendous implications, doesn't it? Tremendous implications. I want to briefly reflect on three Implications to our relationship with God. The implications to our relationship to each other. And the implications to our relationship to the world. First of all, this reality, this truth of Christmas should provide us with a tremendous sense of peace and assurance in our relationship with God. This is not a God who is just waiting for us to fail because he delights in raining judgment down on us. Isn't that such a common perception? This is a God who took that judgment on himself in order to spare us that judgment. He is for us. 
Romans 8 and verse 32, Paul says, If God did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all and gave him up for us all, can we not trust him to be for us and to graciously give us all things? For those who struggle with guilt and regret, who wonder how God could possibly love you, After what you've done, rest in this amazing truth. Consider what it cost him to give us that gift. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. That going all the way back to eternity past, that Divine calculation. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And the answer that God arrived at is, yes, it is worth it. I will endure the cross for the joy set before me. Before he ever created us, he decided that you and I were worth it. He loves us. He is for us. And we can rest in that love. Second implication, Paul says in verse 5, and actually that's where verses 1 through 5 come into play. That whole um, paragraph there that Paul um, um, is is sharing with the Philippians at the beginning of chapter 2. He ends in verse 5 by saying, Have this same mind in you that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and this is the mind of Christ. He emptied himself. We are to follow his example, Paul says, in our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what are the circumstances in which you are being called to empty yourself? Perhaps... Like my son, you are learning to care for a newborn. That's pretty much emptying yourself, wouldn't you say? Maybe you're caring for someone who's vulnerable during the pandemic. I know a lot of people at TCC who are doing that. And the fact that they are caring for someone who is vulnerable means that their freedom has been severely limited by the needs of another. The call To empty yourself. Maybe you're in conflict with someone. And the interesting thing is that I think this call extends to us in the midst of conflict. Not only when we think we're right, but when we are right. (laughs) The call still extends to us. Jesus' example, his willingness to empty himself even though he was the offended party tells us that there are things that are more important to God than being right. He took great injustice unto himself out of love for the sake of the relationship. The day will come when humanity will recognize that God was right. But Jesus was okay with them thinking he was wrong in order to secure an eternal relationship. 
Perhaps someone has offended you and you're finding it difficult to forgive them. The fact is that as God's people who are called to serve each other in love, we will find that God always brings into our lives opportunities for us to empty ourselves. We have to ask the question, am I prepared to pay the cost? Trusting that just as the joy that awaited Christ was worth it for him, that there is a joy that awaits us. Finally, it has implications for our relationship with the world. Jesus said to his disciples and to all of us that would follow after him, he said in John chapter 20, verse 21, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. In the incarnation, Jesus came to us and he set, his, he set our need above his rights. That's what Paul's saying right there in Philippians chapter 2. He set our need above his rights. And now he calls us, who are the recipients of the gift, to become the givers along with him. We have been the recipients, but now that having received, we now become givers. And giving always comes at a cost to the giver. What makes us think that we can be givers of the gospel, that we can be ambassadors of reconciliation without cost to ourselves? If we are to be his witnesses, we too will pay a price. We will pay the price of the giver. Just as God counted the cost before creating humanity, Jesus calls us to count the cost if we want to be his disciples. It's going to cost you something. The fact is that we cannot hope to be ambassadors of reconciliation from a distance, from a safe distance. It requires us to make ourselves vulnerable just as Jesus made himself vulnerable. We may get hurt. We may be humiliated. We may be rejected. We may even be crucified. But we can do so in the confidence that just as the Father exalted the Son, so he will exalt his children who learn to empty themselves. What a gift. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see. We have just scratched the surface because our capacity to understand what you did is so limited. Open our eyes, Lord, as far as we can. Empower us by your Spirit to see what in our natural selves we can't see, that we might truly be in awe and wonder 
not only at the gift that we have received, but at what it cost you to give it to us. Confirm our love. Strengthen our resolve to learn from you, to empty ourselves as you have emptied yourself for us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.